Welcome, everybody. We're so glad to have you here. As you know, this is one of the highlights of the year for adult education in Orange County uh, to have the founding dean of the UCI Law School, Erwin Shemrinsky, who we're so happy as a member of University Synagogue, to have him come and speak to the community about about to be, as well as yesterday's uh, Supreme Court decisions. Uh, we're all very fortunate to have Dean Chemerinsky as part of our Jewish community, our Orange County Jewish community, um, the Orange County general community, and of course, the legal community of the United States and far beyond. He is really a shining star. Um, I hope as you came in, you received the Distinguished Speakers series. These are the speakers coming to University Synagogue between now and next January. You might notice that the first speaker is Dean Chemerinsky, and the final speaker in the booklet in January is also a speaker that we're co-sponsoring with the Community Scholar Program, and we feel very indebted, as everybody in the community does, to the fine work of Ari and Fran and many, many other people. Uh, that allow us to have the quality of speakers brought in from around the world to our communities so we get intellectually and culturally and religiously enriched. I want to remind, uh, for, how many people have been to the biblical trial series at University Synagogue in the past? Okay, so ev every March, I just want to remind those who have come and those who hopefully will come who haven't been here in the past, that Dean Chemerinsky also has the enviable or unenviable task of defending biblical personages in a, a legal trial with a judge, a prosecutor, and the defense attorney over here every year. It's incredibly exciting. It makes the Bible come alive. Um, it's humorous. There are a lot of um, theatrics and props and a lot of intellectual sparring by great legal titans. So uh, we invite you to look for that as well. If you like today, you'll also like the trial. Uh, again, I want to thank Dean Chemerinsky. I want to, I'm so glad that everyone is here. And I want to introduce Fran, who's going to introduce our speaker. Thank you, Rabbi Rochlis. Uh, we would like to thank University Synagogue for co-sponsoring this event with the CSP, and we thank you for your generous hospitality. Good afternoon and welcome, everyone. My name is Fran Gustin, and on behalf of Ari Katz and the CSP Board, I want to welcome you to our fourth annual Supreme Court Review with Dean Erwin Chemerinsky. Before we get started, please make sure you have silenced your cell phones. Now, before I introduce our speaker, I'd like to tell you just a little bit about the CSP. The Community Scholar Program was founded 15 years ago by Ari Katz and a small group of supporters. Their goal was to bring the brightest thinkers, musicians, artists, writers in the Jewish world to Orange County, and that is what we have done. To learn more about the CSP, you can visit our website. It is on the pages with our upcoming programs that you have all received. Or you can go to our iTunes site and listen to one of the over 
200 free podcasts that are available. Now to our main event, Dean Chemerinsky. First of all, Dean, thank you so very much for your generosity and willingness to come every single June to discuss the momentous decisions that are about to be handed down that will affect each and every one of us. You all know that Dean Chemerinsky is the founding dean and distinguished law professor at UCI's nationally ranked law school. He just published his eighth book, The Case Against the Supreme Court, in fall of 2014. What you may not know is that UCI's law school recently made its debut on US News and World Report's list of top law schools at number 30 out of 198 accredited law schools nationwide. This is a remarkable achievement for a law school that only opened its doors six short years ago. In addition, the law school is ranked in the top 10 in the nation for diversity in the student body. And in their clinical programs, the clinics that provide direct legal aid and representation to those in need, they were ranked number 11 in the nation. Bravo. At the law school's most recent graduation ceremony, Senator Barbara Boxer was the commencement speaker. I had the chance to read her speech online, and I, had, and I found what she had to say to your graduating students to be very inspiring. I'd like to share a few of her words. She said the following, quote, courageous attorneys have changed the course of our history because they refused to accept the inequality and injustice that they saw around them. They believed deeply in the four powerful words etched into the portico of the Supreme Court, equal justice under law. And they spent their careers making sure that our society lives up to that promise. You, Dean Chemerinsky, by founding a law school uniquely dedicated to public service, have transformed our profession and all of our lives for the better. In closing, Senator Boxer said the following, which I personally think should be inscribed above the entrance to the law school in honor of you and your graduates. Quote, you used your skills to lift up the lives of others. You worked to bring people together, but you were never afraid to stand alone. And you never stopped fighting to ensure equal justice under law. And now, please join me in welcoming Dean Irwin Chemerinsky. Rabbi, Rabbi Fran, thank you so much for the incredibly kind introduction. Thank all of you for being here and for the warm welcome. We are now in the 10th year with John Roberts as Chief Justice of the United States. Some characteristics of the Roberts Court have become clear over the last decade. One is that the Supreme Court decides many fewer cases every year than it used to. Last year, the Supreme Court decided 68 cases after briefing and oral argument. This year, the Supreme Court had 
a total of 68 oral arguments, which probably means to decide a couple of cases less than that. The year before last, the court decided 73 cases after briefing an oral argument. The year before that, the court decided 65 cases after briefing an oral argument, which was the fewest number decided in any year in my lifetime. To put this in some context, for much of the 20th century, the Supreme Court was deciding over 200 cases a year. As recently as the 1980s, the court was averaging 160 cases a year. In October term 1988, the 88-89 term, the last of that decade, the Supreme Court decided 162 cases after briefing an oral argument. To go from 162 cases to last year's 68 cases in a quarter of a century is truly dramatic. The smaller docket began when William Rehnquist was the Chief Justice of the United States. In his last year as Chief Justice, officially known as October term 2004, the court decided 85 cases after briefing an oral argument. When John Roberts went before the Senate Judiciary Committee in the summer of 2005 for his confirmation hearings, he was asked about the smaller docket. He lamented it. He said the Supreme Court should be deciding at least 100 cases a year. He became chief and the docket promptly got smaller. The Supreme Court has yet to reach 85 cases in any year since John Roberts became Chief Justice. This is enormously important. It matters lawyers because it's much harder to get Supreme Court review now than ever before. This year the Supreme Court had over 8,500 petitions for review. And I said there were only 68 cases that were argued. In terms of the law, many more major legal issues go a longer time before being resolved. Many more conflicts among the lower courts go a longer time before being settled. The other characteristic that's become clear about the Roberts Court over its decade is one that I've mentioned here before. When it matters most, it's the Anthony Kennedy Court. I know we refer to it as the Roberts Court out of tradition, out of deference to the chief, but at least from the perspective of lawyers who stand before the justice and write briefs to them, this really is the Kennedy Court. Last year, Justice Kennedy was the justice most often in the majority. In fact, that's been true for all the years that John Roberts was Chief Justice. Anthony Kennedy is the majority in 95% of all of the decisions. Last year, Justice Kennedy was the justice most often in the majority in the 5-4 decisions. Those, after all, are usually the most important. They're, by definition, the most controversial. Justice Kennedy last term was the majority in 100% of the 5-4 rulings. If nothing else, I say, from the lawyer's perspective, there's often the sense of arguing to an audience of one. I argued a case in the Supreme Court last year. I give away no secrets when I tell you that my brief was a shameless attempt to pander to Justice Kennedy. If I could have, I would have put Anthony Kennedy's picture on the front of my brief. <laughs> my case wasn't unique among those on the docket. Everyone knows, even the justices know, that it's the Kennedy court. The tradition of my doing this these last few years is what I try to do is talk about what I regard as the most important cases from the end of last term, 
after I spoke with you last, and then to preview for you what I regard as the most important cases for this term. Rather than go through a long list of cases, I usually do, as I will today, three or four cases, but I'll leave plenty of time for questions, and I'm glad to talk about any other cases you want, including the ones that came down yesterday. For those of you who are lawyers, you know, in order to get mandatory continuing legal education credit, there needs to be a handout, so I prepared a handout to satisfy the state bar requirement, but of course I brought copies for everyone, so if nothing else you get a souvenir from the hour here. <laughs> I want to talk about three areas. The first are the two cases from last year, and the second two are what I regard as the most important cases to come down later this month. The first area that I want to talk about concerns religion. And I want to talk about two decisions from last term, both of which I find very disturbing. The first is Town of Greece versus Galloway. The Town of Greece is outside of Rochester, New York. It's about 100,000 people. In 1999, the town board adopted the practice of each month inviting a local clergy member to deliver a prayer before the town board meeting. From 1999 to 2007, without exception, every month the town invited a Christian clergy member to deliver the prayer. About two-thirds of the time, the prayers were explicitly Christian in their content. In 2007, a couple of people complained of this. For the next four months, the town invited non-Christian clergy. But then, for the next 18 months, the town reverted and invited only Christian clergy. And almost always, 86% of the time, the prayers were explicitly Christian in their content. A challenge was brought to this. The argument was that it violated the provision of the First Amendment of the Constitution that says that the government can make no law respecting the establishment of religion. The Federal Court of Appeals in New York declared this unconstitutional. The Court of Appeals said that the town had impermissibly aligned itself with Christianity. I think the Court of Appeals was clearly right. But the Supreme Court, in a five to four decision, reversed the Court of Appeals and ruled in favor of the town of Greece. Justice Kennedy wrote the majority opinion it was joined in its entirety by Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito. Justice Thomas agreed and agreed with the reasoning in part, joined in part by Justice Scalia. Justice Kagan wrote the dissent, and the dissent was joined by Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, and Sotomayor. Justice Kennedy, writing for the majority, said, there's a long history of prayers before legislative sessions so this is a history that goes back to the time of George Washington. There had been a prior Supreme Court case about prayers before legislative sessions. It's a case called Marsh versus Chambers in 1983. That involved a Presbyterian minister delivering prayers before Nebraska's legislative sessions. But in that case, all references to Christ had been removed from the prayers before the litigation. In town of Greece versus Galloway, the Supreme Court said, it doesn't matter whether the prayers are so-called non-sectarian prayers or sectarian prayers. Prayers are always allowed before legislative sessions. 
Chief Justice Kennedy writing of the court said, we don't want courts to examine the content of individual prayers to decide if they're impermissible. The court said, there is no violation of the Establishment Clause unless there is a pattern of prayer over time that proselytizes or denigrates religion. Justice Thomas, writing just for himself, said that nothing a state or local government ever could do should be found to violate the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. He said the Establishment Clause was just meant to keep Congress from creating a national church. So even if a state established a state religion, even if a state coerced people to participate, for Clarence Thomas, that would be constitutional. In a part of the opinion joined by Justice Scalia, Justice Thomas said, at most the government violates the Establishment Clause only if it legally coerces religious behavior. Justice Kagan wrote a powerful dissent. She echoed what Sandra Day O'Connor had said on the Supreme Court. She said, we're an incredibly diverse country when it comes to religion. That above all, the Establishment Clause should mean that no one is made to feel like an outsider or an insider relative to his or her own government. Justice Kagan said, anyone who's not Christian would feel like an outsider in going to the Town of Greece board meetings. This is a case that's already having a huge practical effect. The day the case came down, I got a call from a lawyer who represents school boards here in Orange country, County and throughout the country. And he said as soon as the decision was announced, he got a call from his clients. Could they have Christian prayers before their school board meetings? I can't think of why school boards are different than town boards. What we're already seeing across the country before school board meetings and park commission meetings and police commission meetings and town board meetings and city council meetings are Christian prayers. I think here the court was, as Justice Kagan said, tremendously insensitive to the religious diversity of the United States. The other case that I want to talk about with regard to religion was the one from last term that got the most media attention. I remember it previewing it when I was here exactly a year ago. It's a case called Burwell versus Hobby Lobby, decided on Monday, June 30th. It's a case, though, that was widely misreported by the press. Case starts with Congress passing a law calling on the Department of Health and Human Services to promulgate regulations to require that employer-provided insurance would include preventative health care coverage for women. We all know that traditionally insurance coverage when a person would get sick. Congress wanted to make sure that employer-provided insurance also included well care coverage for women. Health and Human Services promulgated detailed regulations about this. One part of those regulations dealt with contraceptive coverage. This part was much more nuanced than the media reports made it seem. For religions that oppose contraception, like the Catholic Church, they do not have to provide this coverage to their employees. For nonprofits that are affiliated with religions that oppose contraception, like a Catholic university, they can get out of this requirement by signing a two-page statement. They just have to attest that they're affiliated with a religion that opposes contraception. 
then the insurance provider still has to provide contraceptive coverage to employees, but at no cost to the employer. But for profit companies that provide insurance to employees, must include contraceptive coverage for women. It has to include the 20 types of contraceptives approved for women by the Food and Drug Administration. Hobby Lobby is headquartered in Oklahoma. It's a family-held business. It has over 500 stores throughout the country. It has over 23,000 employees. Its owners objected to having to provide contraceptive coverage to women. On Monday, June 30th, in a five to four decision, the Supreme Court held that it violated a federal statute, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, to require that a family-held business provide contraceptive coverage that violated its owner's religious beliefs. Justice Samuel Alito wrote for the court, joined by Chief Justice Roberts, and also Justices Scalia, Kennedy, and Thomas. Justice Ginsburg wrote the dissent, joined by Justices Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor. Justice Alito, writing for the court, said that corporations are persons protected under this statute, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. He said that the owners of a business shouldn't have to give up practicing their religion by choosing to incorporate. He said it was, quote, obvious that forcing the business to write contraceptive coverage violated the owner's religious beliefs. The court said it would assume without deciding that there's a compelling government interest in providing contraceptives to women, but the court said there's other alternatives. The federal government could choose to pay for contraceptives directly. The federal government could give for-profit companies the option it gives to not-for-profits. Justice Ginsburg wrote for the dissent, and again, it was a vehement dissent. She disagreed with everything in the majority's opinion. She disagreed that a corporation can have religious beliefs. She said a corporation is a fictional entity. It can't have a religious conscience. It can't have free exercise of religion. She disagreed that just providing an insurance option is a substantial burdening of the owner's religious beliefs. She disagreed there's any less restrictive alternative. I think this case is enormously important. First, this is the first time the Supreme Court has ever said that a secular for-profit corporation can have free exercise of religion. Now, I have no doubt that if I want to run a business, I can do so by my religious beliefs, so long as I don't violate any other law. I would create a corporation to protect myself from liability. I'm creating a fictional entity, the corporation, and I'm liable only for what I invest in the corporation. Now, Justice Alito's majority opinion was just about family-held businesses. But it might surprise you that over 90% of all business in the United States are so-called close corporations, family-held businesses. Besides that, nothing in Justice Alito's reasoning said that other kinds of businesses can't claim the same religious protection. He just said it's unlikely they'd do so. But this aspect of the case is going to have much broader implications. When the Supreme Court said that corporations have free speech rights, the court justified it by explaining that the more speech that's out there in the marketplace of ideas, the better informed we'll all be. So it's good to let corporations have speech rights. That's what the court said, for instance, in Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission. But here the court said something different. 
Here the court said the owners of a business shouldn't have to give up their constitutional rights by choosing to incorporate the business. There are many rights that corporations have never been able to claim. Corporations don't get the privilege against self-incrimination under the Fifth Amendment. Corporations don't get privacy under the Fourth Amendment. But why should the owners of a business have to give up those rights by choosing to incorporate? I think what the court has done here is pave the way to corporations getting far more in the way of constitutional rights than has ever been conceived as possible. Second, this is the first time the Supreme Court has ever said it infringes the free exercise of religion to facilitate what somebody else might do. No one obviously is required by the law to use contraceptives. No one's prohibited from using contraceptives. The owners of Hobby Lobby could still speak out against contraceptives. All Hobby Lobby had to do was make an insurance option available. To see why this matters so much, think of a business owned by a Christian scientist. And imagine that business owner says, I don't want to have to provide any insurance to my employees because it's going to be used for medical care that I don't believe in. I can't distinguish the business owned by the Christian scientist from Hobby Lobby. It makes me wonder whether a lot of business owners are now going to discover they've actually been Christian scientists all along. <laughs> or what if Hobby Lobby just says now to its women employees that they can't use any of the salary that they're paid to purchase contraceptives or procure an abortion. If Hobby Lobby doesn't have to indirectly pay through this through an insurance option, why can't it say it won't directly pay through salary? And third, this is the first time that the Supreme Court has ever held that people can inflict an injury directly on others in the name of free exercise of religion. There was only one prior Supreme Court case about the statute, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, it involved a small religion that wanted to use a plant that was a hallucinogenic substance in making a tea. And the Supreme Court said no one would be hurt by their making the tea, so they had the right to do so under the statute. It might surprise you that most of the cases where the Supreme Court has ever said there's a denial of free exercise of religion involved whether people who quit their jobs for religious reasons can get unemployment benefits. Again, no one's directly hurt by that. But thousands, maybe tens of thousands of women, maybe more than that, without access to contraceptives, or at least the contraceptive choice, by virtue of this decision. This was Justice Ginsburg's primary concern in her dissent. She worried that this would open the door to businesses claiming exemption from other federal laws based on free access religion. She was especially worried that businesses would now claim an exemption from federal anti-discrimination law based on religion. Justice Alito attempted to answer this in a paragraph. He said, this doesn't open the door to, quote, race discrimination because the government has a compelling interest in stopping race discrimination and there's no less restrictive alternative. But is it telling that he phrased that just as race discrimination? He could have said, but he didn't. The government has a compelling interest in stopping race, comma, sex, comma, or sexual orientation discrimination. Many fear that the court has opened the door to businesses being able to discriminate, say based on sex or sexual orientation discrimination. 
Indiana, you might remember, a couple of months ago, adopted its own version of a Religious Freedom Restoration Act. There was an enormous controversy because it was clear that the purpose was to allow businesses to discriminate based on sexual orientation. Because of political pressure, Indiana's legislature amended the law to say it's not possible. But the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act has not been amended. There's a real concern that the court's decision in Hobby Lobby will open the door to religious discrimination against women, against gays and lesbians, and others. So those were what I thought of the two most important cases from last year. Now let me shift to this, officially called October term 2014, and the two cases that I regard as the most important to be decided between now and the end of June. So the second major area in the handout concerns the Affordable Care Act. And the case is King versus Burwell. And the issue here is truly whether tens of millions of Americans will continue to have access to the healthcare system. As you know, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, sometimes referred to as Obamacare, had as its goal making sure that all Americans had access to the healthcare system. At the time that it was adopted, it was estimated that 50 million Americans did not have health insurance or health care coverage. The Affordable Care Act tried to provide health care coverage for the poorest among us by saying that every state had to include within its Medicaid program those within 133% of the federal poverty level. The federal government would pay 100% of the cost of this to the year 2019 and 90% thereafter. For those just above this income level, still of lower or lower middle income, the way in which health insurance was to be made affordable was through tax credits. And the statute says that those who qualify economically would get a tax credit if they purchase insurance from, quote, a state-established exchange. It's estimated that over 10 million people are already now able to afford health insurance who otherwise could not do so because of these tax credits. The law requires that every state create a health care exchange, but Congress constitutionally cannot force states to do something. The Supreme Court has said it violates the Constitution for Congress to compel states to adopt laws. And so the law says if a state chooses not to create an exchange, then the federal government would come and create an exchange within that state. At this moment, 16 states have created health care exchanges, including California. 34 states have not created health care exchanges. The federal government has come and created exchanges in those states. So again, to give you statistics, in Florida, there's a million and a half people who have purchased insurance from the health care exchange there created by the federal government. In Texas, a million people have purchased insurance through the exchange created by the federal government. The challenges in this case say the statute says that a person gets a tax credit if they purchase insurance from an exchange created by a state-established exchange. They say people don't get the tax credit if they purchase insurance in the 34 states where it's a federally created exchange. It's only a state-established exchange. The United States government says it's clear that Congress wanted people to get the tax credit if they purchase insurance from an exchange, 
whether it's federally created or state created. The law says a person gets a tax credit, they purchase insurance from, quote, such exchange. So a great deal of the briefing, the argument in this case, turns on what does the word such mean? And the United States government says to the Supreme Court, we wouldn't believe that Congress wanted to give states that didn't create an exchange the ability to undermine the entire law. And that's what would happen if the Supreme Court rules in favor of the challengers. The RAND Corporation has estimated that cost on the healthcare exchanges for insurance will go up by 45% in the states where there's federally created exchanges without the tax credits. The reason for that is that without the tax credits, many people won't be able to afford the insurance. As they leave the healthcare exchange, the risk pool will shrink. As the risk pool shrinks, costs go up, RAND says by 45%. If health insurance costs go up by 45% of the exchanges, that's going to price a lot of other people out of the market. That's going to cause a spiral which will collapse those exchanges. Experts on all sides of the political spectrum agree that the exchanges nationally are sufficiently interdependent that if the 36 exchanges fail, all of the exchanges will fail. That then will mean millions of people, tens of millions of people, will have access to health care costs. So what's the Supreme Court likely to do in this case? I have no idea. <laughs> You've got to remember that in 2012, the Supreme Court ruled five to four to uphold the Patient Protection Affordable Care Act. But four justices, just Scalia, Kennedy, Thomas, and Alito, would have declared the entire law unconstitutional. So you start knowing there's four justices who want to validate the entire statute. Chief Justice Roberts, by upholding the individual mandate, saved the law then, but will he be willing to do so again? The case was argued in the Supreme Court on Wednesday, March 4th. It's always difficult to read a transcript of an oral argument or listen to an oral argument and guess as to what the justice are going to do, but it was particularly difficult here. Chief Justice Roberts only said two things in the entire oral argument, and one was a sarcastic quip. Justices Scalia and Alito left no doubt that they're going to vote to, in favor of the challengers that you only get the tax credit if it's from a state-established exchange. In fact, at the oral argument, Justice Scalia said to the Solicitor General of the United States, Donald Farrelly, can't Congress just fix this by amending the Affordable Care Act? To which Donald Farrelly said, and you can hear his intonation just reading the transcript, quote, this Congress? It doesn't take much in the way of inference to guess that Justice Thomas is going to vote together with Justice Scalia and Alito on this. Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan left no doubt that they're going to vote in favor of the federal government, that people get the tax credit what they buy from the federal exchange or the state exchange. That leaves Justice Kennedy. His questions seemed more inclined towards the federal government than the challengers. He wanted to focus very much on what would be the consequences of ruling in favor of the challengers, and I think that favors the government, but very difficult to predict what the court's going to do. But it's a case with enormous practical social significance. The final case that I listed concerns marriage equality, Obergefell versus Hodges, and this is a case that has the potential to be one of the most important in our lifetime. 
Many federal courts of appeals had declared unconstitutional state laws that prohibited same-sex marriage. The Federal Court of Appeals in Richmond, Virginia, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, the Federal Court of Appeals in Chicago, the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, the Federal Court of Appeals in San Francisco for the West Coast, the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, Federal Court of Appeals in Denver, the United States Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit, all had declared unconstitutional state laws that prohibited same-sex marriage. Several of these cases came to the Supreme Court at the beginning of October, and to my surprise, and I think the surprise of many, the Supreme Court denied review in all of these cases. But then, not long after, the Federal Court of Appeals in Cincinnati, the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, upheld state laws in Kentucky, Michigan, Ohio, and Tennessee prohibiting same-sex marriage. It was a two-to-one decision. At that point, there was then a disagreement among the Federal Court of Appeals called a split among the circuits, and it was quite predictable that the Supreme Court would grant review. And that's what's before the Supreme Court now. It was argued on Tuesday, April 28th. The Supreme Court granted review in two questions. The title of the case is Obergefell versus Hodges, though it involves all four states' laws. First question, do state laws that violate the Constitution, do state laws prohibiting same-sex marriage violate the Constitution? And second, if they are constitutional, does a state have to recognize a same-sex marriage from another state? Here I will offer you my prediction. On Tuesday morning, June 30th, at about 10 a.m., the Supreme Court, by a 6-3 to three margin, is going to hold that state laws that prohibit marriage equality violate the Constitution. Why do I come to that prediction with such specificity and seeming certainty? Well, I don't think anyone, liberal or conservative, has any doubt how Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Sinner, and Kagan are going to vote on this issue. In fact, at oral argument, all of those justices made clear that they were disposed to its finding that there's a right to marriage equality for gays and lesbians under the Constitution. Nor do I think that liberals or conservatives really have much doubt about how Anthony Kennedy is going to vote on this. There have been three Supreme Court decisions in all of American history advancing rights for gays and lesbians. Rome River Sevens in 1996, Lawrence versus Texas in 2003, and United States versus Windsor in 2013. Do you know who wrote the majority opinion in all of those cases expanding rights for gays and lesbians? Anthony Kennedy. I think that everyone perceives that he sees his longest term legacy on the Supreme Court is advancing rights for gays and lesbians. In fact, just two years ago, in United States versus Windsor, he wrote the opinion for the court declaring unconstitutional the Federal Defense of Marriage Act saying that the failure to recognize same-sex marriages served no legitimate government purpose. After all, what legitimate government purpose is served by denying gays and lesbians of the right to marry? That then leaves Chief Justice John Roberts. Now, admittedly, John Roberts dissented two years ago when the court declared the Defense of Marriage Act unconstitutional. John Roberts' questions at oral argument, April 28th, were much more disposed towards favoring the states than the challengers. Though he did ask the attorney for the states, aren't laws that prohibit same-sex marriage a form of sex discrimination? And he's right. The only reason I can't marry another man 
is because of my sex. The only reason a woman can't marry another woman is because of her sex. Isn't that sex discrimination? I think that John Roberts cares deeply about what his legacy is going to be from being the Chief Justice of the United States. Though this is his 10th year as chief, as I said, he's only 60 years old. I think that he realizes that no matter how long he serves on the court, this is one of the cases that he'll be evaluated by. If you talk to the reporters who cover the Supreme Court, they say that of all the justices and chiefs they've seen, he seems the one most focused on his legacy. John Roberts then, I think, wants to be on the right side of history. And he knows where history is going on this issue. As the Supreme Court is considering the question, as we're here today, marriage equality exists in 38 states in the United States. The issue before the Supreme Court then is less about whether to extend marriage equality and more about whether it's going to take it away from all of the states where it exists by virtue of judicial decisions. There's marriage equality now in 19 countries around the world. Just 10 days ago, Ireland voted overwhelmingly to allow marriage equality. An opinion poll at the end of April showed that 65% of all Americans now favor allowing marriage equality for gays and lesbians. According to that opinion poll, among voters under the age of 35, over 85% favor allowing marriage equality. I think that John Roberts is aware of all of this. As I said, I think he wants to be on the right side of history. If none of this persuades you, think of it this way, from the perspective of John Roberts or Anthony Kennedy, let alone Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan. Do they want to be part of writing the next opinion that regarded by history like Plessy versus Ferguson? Or do they want to be part of writing an opinion that's going to be regarded by history as the next Brown versus Board of Education? If you think of it that way, you can see why I'm confident that the Supreme Court's going to hold on June 30th, the likely last day of the term, at about 10 a.m. when decisions get released, that there is a constitutional right to marriage equality. So I've now talked for about the 45 minutes I was allotted, and for 15 minutes I'm glad to take any questions, including I've already been asked to talk about the decisions from yesterday, which I'm glad to do. Please. It's a really important case for us in California. Oh, sure. I was asked to talk about the Arizona Reapportionment Commission, for, the Arizona Legislature for Arizona redistricting commission case. Do you remember a few years ago, California voters passed a law that creates an independent districting commission to draw the districts for the California Assembly or the California Senate, congressional districts? Um, Arizona had an initiative that was passed by its voters even before this. This is meant to address a really serious problem of partisan gerrymandering. Partisan gerrymandering was the political party that controls the legislature, draws election districts to maximize safe seats for that party. And so it's where, say, the Republican-controlled legislature in Texas draws election districts to maximize safe seats for Republicans. It's when Democrats controlled the legislature in California, they would draw election districts to maximize safe seats for Democrats. It's where the city council members, if they're controlled by Republicans, Democrats, draw city council districts to maximize safe seats for that political party. Because computer programs have become so sophisticated, 
legislatures are able to do this with an amazing degree of precision. It often means that even though one political party gets the majority of the votes, the other political party gets control of an overwhelming number of seats in the legislature. Because of partisan gerrymandering in North Carolina, in 2014, Democrats got much more in the way of votes for the state legislature, but Republicans got an overwhelming number of the seats. So I think independent districting commissions are a key solution to that. Voters should be choosing their representatives. It shouldn't be that the representatives get to choose who their voters will be. A challenge has been brought to the Arizona law. It's based on a provision in Article I of the Constitution that says that the legislatures of states shall set the time, place, and manner of elections. And the challenges have argued to the Supreme Court that it has to be the state legislature that determines the election districts, not an independent districting commission. Well, some of this is about what does legislature mean? Can we regard the district commission of the legislature? And some of it is what does time, place, and manner mean? I think this should be an easy question. I think this should be allowed under the Constitution. But the transcript of the oral argument causes me to be much more pessimistic. And I think that partisan gerrymandering is a real threat to the democratic process. And that's why I favor independent districting commissions. Um, the case has been argued and hasn't been decided yet. Let me get other questions, but I'm also, if I'll come back to the NATO, I'll stay after. Please. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your kind words. Sure. Sure. The question was, if you didn't hear, if I look 30 or 40 years from now, could the decisions of the Supreme Court be reversed? And I don't need to look 30 or 40 years from now. I just want to look about 18 months from now to November 2016. Let me begin by answering your last question. Anything the Supreme Court decides can be reversed by a later Supreme Court. Plessy versus Ferguson was reversed by Brown versus Board of Education. Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission in 2010 reversed a decision from seven years earlier that had upheld a provision of the Federal Election Act. Anything the Supreme Court does can be reversed by the Supreme Court. Why do I focus on 2016 rather than take your invitation of 30 or 40 years in the future? I think the president who's elected in 2016, especially if he or she serves two terms, will likely get to fill four vacancies on the Supreme Court. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is now 82 years old. Anthony Kennedy and Antonin Scalia each turn 79 this calendar year, and Stephen Breyer turns 77. We've seen over a long period of time 
that most justices leave the Supreme Court in their early 80s. There's occasionally justices later. John Paul Stevens didn't retire until he was 90. There's occasionally justices leave earlier. Sandy O'Connor was 75 when she stepped down. But we will have, during the next presidency, four justices in their early 80s. And certainly, if these, the next president serves two terms, it just seems inevitable that four vacancies will be filled. Everything turns on who fills those four vacancies. Imagine if those four vacancies are filled by a Democratic president, and Antonin Scalia and Anthony Kennedy are replaced. Well, Citizens United is going to be overruled. I think the two religion cases that I mentioned here will be overruled. But imagine that Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer get replaced by a Republican president. Then things like Roe versus Wade will be overruled. All of our rights turn on who's on the Supreme Court, and the next election is crucial. That's why I don't need to look 30 or 40 years from now. I just need to look to what is going to happen in November 2016. And that includes these religion cases that I talked about. In the very back, Religious Freedom Restoration Act is what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, the RFRA requires uh, courts to subject incidental infringements on free exercise to strict scrutiny. Uh, what is Congress tell the courts what standard of scrutiny is in, say, a racial discrimination case? The courts would subject um, that discrimination to strict scrutiny. Congress would say, no, actually, subject to the law was that if the government at any level significantly burdens somebody's religious freedom, the government would have to show a compelling reason for doing so, and that there was no less restrictive way to achieve it. And then in 1990, the court decided a case called Employment Division versus Smith. It involved some Native Americans in the state of Oregon who wanted to use peyote as part of religious rituals. But Oregon law prohibits peyote. Some states have a religious exemption to the ban on peyote. Oregon did not. And so they brought an argument saying that it violated their free exercise of religion to keep them from using peyote. The Supreme Court ruled against the Native Americans. Justice Scalia wrote for the court, and he said, the Oregon law was not motivated by a desire to interfere with religion. In that sense, it was neutral. He said the Oregon law applied to everyone in the state. In that sense, it was what he called the law of general applicability. He said the free exercise clause cannot be used to challenge a neutral law of general applicability, no matter how much it burdens religion. To see what this means, imagine a county that prohibits all consumption of alcohol. And there are a few in the United States. Imagine that a priest wants to use wine at communion or a Jewish family wants to use wine at a Sabbath or Seder dinner. Prior to Employment Division versus Smith, the priest, the Jewish family would win. After Employment Division versus Smith, they lose because the law prohibiting consumption of alcohol was not motivated by desire to interfere with religion, and it applies to everyone. I'll give an example from a case that I argued and lost. Imagine an Orthodox Jewish or a Muslim inmate who wants a non-pork diet. Prior to Employment Division versus Smith, they always won. After Employment Division versus Smith, I represent an Orthodox Jewish inmate, and I lost because the court said 
the prison diet wasn't set out of a desire to interfere with religion. It was set because pork is cheap and it applies to all prisoners, so you can't win. So Congress in 1993 passes overwhelmingly. In fact, the co-sponsors were Utah Senator Orrin Hatch and Massachusetts Senator Ted Kennedy. How often do you get to see that? The Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And the Religious Freedom Restoration Act sought to restore the law to what it had been before Employment Division versus Smith. It sought by statute to put the law back to where the Constitution was. And it says that if the government significantly burdens religion, the government has to have a compelling reason and has to show there's no other alternative. Why, is your question, did Congress do this? Because it was, well, the simple answer to the question is, a legislature by statute can create rights even where the Constitution doesn't create rights. Private discrimination by a corporation on race or sex doesn't violate the Constitution, but Congress by statute can prohibit it. And that's what Congress was trying to do in this statute. Question here? Please, you had your hand. Yes. In fact, what I'm going to do here is I'll let you talk I'd like to know what happened with the full faith and credit uh, uh, consideration. The question in the Marriage Equality Act, one of the questions was, does the 14th Amendment require a state to recognize a marriage uh, that was performed in a different state? Um, don't, haven't we always honored the full faith and credit uh, in other aspects of the law to honor what another state has considered legal? Article four of the Constitution says that courts in one state must enforce judgments from courts in other states. And the technical language used in the Constitution is they must give full faith and credit to those judgments. So if I'm sued here in California and there's a judgment against me, and I own property in another state, those states must enforce that California court judgment. They must give it full faith and credit. Section, one of the defense of Section two of the Defense of Marriage Act says that no state has to recognize a same-sex marriage from another state. The full faith and credit clause has as a second sentence that Congress can adopt laws to determine the meaning of full faith and credit. There is no Supreme Court case in history ever to construe the meaning of that sentence. So the question is, is Section 2 of the Defense of Marriage Act constitutional? Also, if you focus on the phrasing, I said a court in one state must enforce a judgment from a court in another state. A marriage license is not by itself a court judgment. Now, traditionally, states will recognize marriages from other states. I was married in California, but I went to live in North Carolina. North Carolina recognized our marriage. But states sometimes won't recognize marriage in other states when it violates the public policy of that state. So if the court gets to the second question, you do get to what's covered by the full faith and credit clause. Is section two of the Defense of Marriage Act unconstitutional? It's interesting, at oral argument on April 28th, the justices seemed almost uninterested in the second question. I think that the justices recognize that the whole ballgame is the first question. Because if the court says that every state has to allow marriage equality, no need to get to the second question. But if they get to the second question, then it becomes very complicated. What does the language of Article 4 mean? 
does full faith and credit apply only to court decisions or could it apply to marriage? What if somebody gets a judgment from the court that they're married? All of that would come up. Okay. Sure. Okay, I'm going to actually, since we have a few minutes, talk about both decisions from yesterday because I think both were widely misreported in the media. The headscarf decision is a case called Equal Employment Opportunity Commission versus Abercrombie and Fitch. Abercrombie and Fitch had at the time in hiring people what they called the look, capital T, capital L. I didn't make this up. They only wanted people to fit a certain look. And a young woman came in to interview for a job at Abercrombie and Fitch, and she was wearing a ritual headscarf, hijab, a, a Muslim headscarf. I'm sorry? Hijab. Um, she was wearing the ritual headscarf, and the person who interviewed her wasn't sure whether or not could hire somebody of that, because generally headwear is inconsistent with the Abercrombie and Fitch look. The woman ultimately calls the district manager, and the district manager says, no, you can't hire anyone who's wearing something on their head, that that's inconsistent with the look. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission brings a lawsuit against Abercrombie and Fitch, saying that they didn't comply with Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which prohibits religious discrimination, and it requires accommodation of religion. The Federal Court of Appeals rules in favor of Abercrombie and Fitch and says, well, at no time did this woman ever say that she wanted to wear a headscarf. She didn't ever specifically make inquiry of it. Of course, she had no reason to know she was supposed to make inquiry of it. Um, but the Tenth Circuit says, since she didn't specifically ask if she could do this, she couldn't claim a violation of Title VII. The Supreme Court yesterday, in an eight-to-one decision, reverses the Tenth Circuit and just Scalia writes for the court. The court says, if it could be shown that the motive in not hiring her was avoiding accommodating her religion, that's all that's required. You don't have to show that she makes a request. She doesn't have to make a request. So long as the employer didn't hire her because they didn't want to accommodate, that's all that has to be shown. So the Supreme Court didn't hold that she had a right to wear the headscarf. The court didn't even say that she wins her lawsuit. The court just says all that has to be shown is that the employer's motive in not hiring her was not wanting to accommodate her religion, that the lower court used the wrong standard. The other case decided yesterday that was so widely misreported in the press was a case called Alanis versus United States. Anthony and Tara Lanis had a very bitter divorce. Tara was given custody of their two children. Anthony began posting angry messages on his Facebook page. Many of his messages were written in the form of rap lyrics. Tara said she felt threatened and went to the family court that had granted the divorce. The family court issued a restraining order against Anthony to keep him from posting such things on his Facebook page. It had no effect. Actually, it did have an effect. He posted even angrier and more vituperative messages on his Facebook page. At one point, he posted on his Facebook page that he was going to go to a local kindergarten class 
and commit an act of unprecedented violence. So it is only a question of which kindergarten class. He was prosecuted in federal court in Pennsylvania for making threats in interstate commerce. The jury was instructed that they could find that he made threats in interstate commerce so long as they could find that a reasonable person would feel threatened by the statements. Lannis was convicted, the Federal Court of Appeals affirmed. The United States Supreme Court yesterday reversed the conviction. Chief Justice Roberts wrote for the court. He said, under this federal statute, it has to be shown that he intentionally threatened, or at least recklessly threatened, another. It's not enough to say that from the perspective of a reasonable person who might feel threatened, you've got to show that he intended to do this, or at least was reckless. They sent the case back for a new jury trial with the proper instructions. So I saw media reports that the Supreme Court said they had the First Amendment right for this speech. The Supreme Court was clear it wasn't discussing the First Amendment or speech at all. I read accounts by saying that under the federal law, he had the right to the speech. The Supreme Court didn't say that. All the court said was, these jury instructions were not proper. He needs to be retried. I think under any jury instructions, the speech can be convicted. It's just the court said here, the jury was wrongly instructed, so there has to be a new trial with proper jury instructions. Thank you for having me, and most of all, thank you all so much for coming.